This is an Algoa FM news exclusive. This is episode 21 of Journey to Justice, entitled Getting Ready for Trial. In today's episode, I will look at the state witnesses and highlight why the two people who are Section 204 witnesses could be problematic for the state. When Arnold de Blanche was granted bail, he was given a list of people who would testify against him during his trial. The list has been under wraps, but I managed to get hold of a copy and can confirm that there are 42 names on this list. However, the list can grow longer due to the fact that the trial is not yet underway and the case is still being investigated. If the state unravels more information, they can add witnesses to this list and they can also remove some. But for today's episode, I will focus on the list that was provided to Arnold's defence when he was granted bail in the Makanda High Court. I will not be exposing the names of these witnesses, although we know some of them already. So let's start by looking at these individuals. We've got 42 names on this particular list, and we know about Leonie Jordan, who's Vicky's cousin. We spoke about her countless times throughout this podcast. Crystal Wiggle, Arnold's ex-girlfriend, and her twin sister, Charissa Roots. They are both state witnesses as well. We know that Dylan Cullis, who's already serving time for Vicky's murder, could be called to the stand. But if he does, he would not be able to sway in his plea affidavit in any way. So the state might just prefer to stick to the plea agreement on record. Because remember, if Cullis takes the stand, he can be cross-examined by the defence. And in my opinion, given the nature of this trial, it could be a risk. So from 42 names, that now leaves us with 38 remaining. I can confirm that there are currently 13 police officers on the witness list. They would possibly include the officer who assisted in filing Vicky's missing persons report, done by Leach and Charissa, to those who initially attended to the crime scene, which led to Leach's arrest, and then no doubt the officers who were present when Vicky's body was discovered. Okay, so now we are down to 25 witnesses. Then there is the pathologist, a female doctor from Kobecha. To me, always the highlight of a murder trial and a star witness, in my opinion. Vicky's autopsy will give us an exact cause of death and the sequence of events and is often, if not always, undisputed. Unless there is an aspect to be disputed, but I don't foresee this happening in this trial at all. Her testimony will cover the toxicology report and exact cause of death. There's almost always new information that comes to light during the testimony of a pathologist who will give us insight into Vicky's very last moments. Now we know that Vicky was drugged and suffocated, but only the pathologist would be able to give us an exact cause of death. Remember, according to the plea deal from Dylan Cullis, Vicky had still been alive on the morning after Leach allegedly gave her the Percocet. So the pathologist will tell us how much Percocet was in her system. What other drugs? Alcohol? Did it mix together? We might learn that she could have survived the Percocet and died solely from the suffocation, for example. According to Cullis's plea deal, he said he heard Leach snoring in bed and Vicky was feeling ill. He carried her to the spare bedroom and tried to figure out a way of telling her that her life was in danger. Yet they both passed out. So what I'm trying to say here is that according to Cullis, Vicky was still okay to walk with some assistance from one bedroom 
into another. I'm also still intrigued as to why Colour said that Leach announced that he had sex with Vicky after he gave her the Percocet. Why mention such a random thing in his plea? Well, the pathologist will tell us if there was semen and from how many donors. Why am I saying that? Well, because when Leach found Cullis in the spare bedroom with Vicky, there was an argument. He accused Cullis of having sex with Vicky. And saying that Cullis had only met Leach three days prior, it was not unusual to not trust this man who is more than a decade your junior. When Leach was arrested, police confiscated two pairs of tackies in the BMW he was driving. Both pairs, according to the state, tested positive for blood on the soles. Where did this blood come from? Did Vicky bleed? She was suffocated, remember? Or perhaps Leach and Cullis had a fist fight which drew some blood. Only forensics will be able to tell us that. And this is why a pathologist's testimony is so incredibly important in a murder case such as this. All right, from 42 witnesses, we are now down to 24. Now, if you follow this case closely, you would know that Christian Meyer is also a state witness. His identity was initially withheld in court papers, but it's now in the open. Who is Meyer again? Let me remind you. He's a former inmate who furnished an affidavit to the state where he talks about the fact that Leach requested his advice about getting his hands on a rubber duck he had bought a share into from Mario Derrida Sr., who died in a car accident just a few months prior. Mayer's affidavit also mentions a conversation he had with Vicky, where she explained she wanted someone to assist her to kill Arno Terblanche, whom she was divorcing. This will be an interesting witness because Vicky is not there to defend herself in these allegations and I doubt that Leach will take the stand to corroborate this. So now we're down to 23 witnesses, halfway through the list already. We know that the person who was paid to dig Vicky's grave will most definitely testify. That leaves us now with 22 names on the list. I can only assume that a person from FD Auto Performance will testify on how Leach and De Ridder allegedly requested for the number plate of the BMW to be replaced and to whom they tried to sell some of Vicky's personal belongings. This witness bought only the iPhone belonging to Vicky for 500 Rand after it had been factory reset. So now we're down to 21 witnesses. 11 of them, although I know their names, I have very limited information on who they are and where they fit into the picture. So now we have 10 names left on the list. Four witnesses are related to the accused and four others are friends or acquaintances. The witnesses are not all from Kobecha. Some are from Cape Town, others from Johannesburg, some from George in the Garden Route as well. But I left two witnesses for last. The state's two star witnesses, for the lack of a better word, both have Section 204 status, which is basically a get-out-of-jail-free card. The state will rely heavily on these two witnesses to build its case and sharpen their daggers. The two are Mario de Reder Jr., the youngster who was present when Vicky died and who allegedly helped bury her body, and Pindelezueni, who is smack at the centre of the additional charges faced by Arnold, which includes one of conspiracy to commit murder and six more for defeating the ends of justice. Now, I've learned on more than one occasion that things can go very wrong with state witnesses. They can become hostile 
and derail your entire case. A perfect example, if you remember, is the Christopher Panayotu trial. Panayotu is currently serving a life sentence for orchestrating the murder of his school teacher wife Jade in 2015. And the middleman in this case, Lutandu Sioni, the one who had to get a hitman, was the state's star 204 witness who made an about turn on the stand and refused to answer any questions. And today, instead of enjoying his get-out-of-jail-free card, he too is serving life for his role in Jade's murder because he did not keep up his end of the bargain as it was set out in becoming a 204 witness. But back to Mario de Ridder, only 19 years old when this crime was committed. He will be an adult in the eyes of the law when he eventually takes the stand. Cullis is serving 18 years in prison, yet the Ridder allegedly was equally complicit. So one has to sit for 18 years and the other one just has to tell the truth. Cullis got the raw end of the deal here, in my opinion, and Arnold's lawyer, Alvin Gribeno, agreed with me. The Ridder is now the 204 witness. Correct. You make somebody who's an accomplice in a matter, a murder matter, a 204 witness. Why? Because you don't have enough evidence against the other people to get a conviction. So now you take the redder against who you have a very strong case. Remember, the redder was with mm. in the house. The whole time. The redder was with when she was murdered. He was in the room. Correct. The redder was with and assisted in selling her jewelry and personal belongings. And going to the grave. The redder was with when... Later, her phone was sold after it had been factory reset. The redder was with with a gun. The redder was with the whole time. He can only implicate two persons. He can implicate Cullis. And Leach. And Leach. At that stage, Cullis had already confessed to everything. He had made a formal confession and he had made a pointing out of the body. So why do you want to make use of a 204 witness to implicate Cullis if you've already got the strong case against him. But that's exactly what puzzled me. Why make the redder a witness against Leach if they've got this very strong case against him? The only reason why you would do that, other than testifying against Cullis and Leach, is to testify against Arnold. So what does Arnold do? He calls the bluff. He says, the redder does not know me. I have never met him. Mm. I have never spoken to him. There is no way that the Ridder can name me as a role player. So do you think that the Ridder should be worried? Absolutely. Now, needless to say, the state is bargaining on the Ridder to implicate Arnold. And let's say he does not do that on the stand. Well, if the court found his testimony to not be truthful at the end of the trial, then he too will face murder charges, which will still be a win for the state because then the Ridder will eventually go to prison, just like the middleman in the Panayotu murder. Now I want to focus on Pindele Zweni, the man who convinced Arnold to part with over a half a million rand, allegedly to have his co-accused killed and all kinds of other things. Now let's look at Zweni. He started a non-profit organization called Sasapu, South African Sentenced and Awaiting Trial Prisoners Organization, which was registered back in 2005. So if I can put on a defense hat for a moment, I would want to discredit these two witnesses. So hypothetically, as a defense attorney, I would want to discredit, in particular, Zweni, 
who Arnold said provided him with a cell phone in prison. Besides for discrediting Zweni, the defence might also want to create reasonable doubt. And I will now focus on this. I'm going to pretend to be a defence attorney now. And this is how I would approach this particular situation. Zweni claims that he used to be a policeman for 16 years. Why is he no longer with SAPS? When money was paid over to Zweni, the account holder was a person with the surname Pretorius. And this always puzzled me. But lo and behold, his name on the witness list is Zeftin Pretorius Zweni. So I can only assume that this is the name on his ID book. So Zweni, or Pretorius, claims to be a former policeman who was trained under the apartheid police in Flakblas, according to Arnold. Thus clearly a smooth talker. The average person has one Facebook account, unless one was hacked and you start another one, right? While Zweni has not one, but five different Facebook pages. One claims he works for the Department of Health. One shows him driving around in Arnold's vehicle. And three others, of which one was last used in 2014 and another in 2020. Why would you need so many Facebook accounts? And no less than three different phone numbers. Also, the Facebook page for Sasapo was only created in December of 2019. Khribano and I talked about Zweni during our interview, and here's a recap. How does a man like Zweni get access to a person inside St. Albans prison? Remember, Zweni was taken to Arnold inside prison to his cell, wearing a police, police jacket, being introduced by members of correctional services to Arnold as a colonel in the police. And he tells him, it's important that we have communication with each other. And in front of the persons, the employees, the head of prison, he hands him a cell phone and says, if you need to contact me, here's a cell phone. Do you think um, when this trial concludes that there's a real possibility that Zweni could be charged with something? Well, we're waiting in order to receive our copy of the police docket with the evidence against us. Once we have received that, we will take the matter against Zweni further. Now, according to Arnold, the meeting with Zweni was facilitated by Captain Siabongo Tutu, who was working in the medium A section of the St. Albans Correctional Facility, where Arnold was in custody for over a year. And because of all this drama involving Zweni, Captain Tutu was demoted to the medium B section of the prison and faced a disciplinary hearing. Tutu is not a witness and clearly has first-hand knowledge of what Arnold alleges. He says Zweni extorted money from him, plain and simple. It took me 20 minutes on the internet to find two complaints against Mr. Zweni and his organization, Sasapu. Without disclosing the identity of these people, I will read these two complaints to you. Both were on the same platform, but two years apart. The first was on the 28th of November 2018 and stated the following. I would like to share the review regarding the owner of Sasapu Pundile Zweni. Working for him came with a bad experience. The second complaint was two years later on the 8th of November 2020, where a person accused Sasapu of being a money laundering company and she threatened to go to the press. I reached out to this woman but have not yet received a reply from her. But I'm going to read to you some of what she had to say about Mr. Zweni in a very lengthy post. She says, Pindile, 
It's about time I leave Sasapu because your money laundering company has dented my name in traumatizing ways. What kind of father would allow his daughter to travel halfway across the country for 11 hours without even a five rand in her pocket? Well, I'm a mother and you failed being a boss towards me. Please pray for your family on a daily basis. If losing your child was painful, well, to me, it's a joke. Because I've also lost my relationship with my mother due to your empty promises and debts. I've believed through thinking that I'm working. You're still going to lose your loved ones and you will die alone with no one to bury you. You've ruined numerous families with your lies. I've cursed you for life. This man is nothing but bullshit. My beautiful people, if you see this name Sasapu, run. But I'm going to take this to the media, if not on a global scale. I'm sick and tired of holding back. So it sounds like this woman was under the impression that she was working for Sasapu, yet she was never paid. But back to creating reasonable doubt. Let's go back to Arnold's second affidavit. He states that on February of 2022, the task force raided his cell where his phone and notebook was confiscated. He says two days later, Captain Tutu took him to the office and here he was introduced via a phone call to Mr. Zweni, who said he was in possession of Arnold's phone and notebook. So if I were the defense, I would ask the following questions. Who organized the raid in prison? Why was Zweni, who is in no shape or form involved in correctional services, in possession of the confiscated goods? Were all the prison cells raided or only the one where Arnold was in? Why was his notebook taken? Since pen and paper is not considered contraband, he was a trial-awaiting prisoner and busy with bail applications. You can't tell me that he was not allowed a pen to write with. What could Zweni have done to Arnold's phone over a two-day period? How did the state get hold of the phone? Was it first given to them and then Zweni got hold of it? Where did the state get their information that Arnold was plotting to have his co-accused killed? I'm assuming from the phones because, and I quote, the state said, the conspiracy to have Leach, Cullis and Ritter killed is discussed in detail in WhatsApp conversations. In response to this, Arnold said, and I quote, I want to categorically state that the state cannot have any evidence implicating me in the commission of the alleged new offences, whether in the form of WhatsApp messages or any other form. If I was party to any WhatsApp communications implicating me in the commission of the alleged new offences, I would of necessity know about such communications. There were no communications, so I can categorically state that there can be no record of such communications. End quote. Let's not forget that Arnold's legal team is prepared to put him on the stand to testify in his own defense. The defense might even argue that the messages were fabricated by Zweni while the phone was in his possession. And let's not forget that there's also Leach, who has his own legal representative, who will also be afforded the opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses. And Arnold and Leach can both call witnesses of their own. This is going to be such an interesting court case, and I will be present in court every single day to bring you all the latest. But for now, this is a wrap of Season 1 of Journey to Justice. I want to thank you all for listening and being part of this journey. 
A reminder that the dedicated email to this podcast is still available for you to reach out with any tip-offs or comments. It is journeytojustice at algoafm.co.za. That is journey, the number two, justice at algoafm.coza. That, that was an Algoa FM news exclusive.